a dentist with too much time on his hands and too much recording equipment in his basement. Armed with an obsession to bring entertaining and informative content to the dental world in a way that's never been done before, I give you the Alan Mead Experience. Hello and welcome to the Alan Mead Experience. I'm your host, Alan Mead, and uh, to get right to it, I'd like to introduce my co-host for today's show, Dr. Jason Smithson. Jason, how are you doing? Good morning, Alan. How are you? I'm doing it's great. A, it's more of a morning for you, I think, 4.30? Yeah, it's, for pre- it's pretty early. It's pretty early. I'll give you that. So we're talking to you um, in the very southern part of the United Kingdom. Is that correct? Yeah. Th- well, actually, no. It's the most southwest part. So uh, basically, if you imagine England as a triangle with Ireland uh, up on the top left, um, if you go as far west on that triangle, in other words, as far left as you can go, keep going. And just before you fall off the end, that's me. That's you. And okay. we're, 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 in fact, the closest to the U.S. So we're very, very west. But we, um, we get a little bit of the Gulf Stream. So we have today uh, massively high temperatures for the U.K., 70 degrees. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have a little bit of sunburn. And... Um, we get palm trees and uh, we live on the beach. So get out of here! Of, yeah, I didn't yeah. realize well, not, that. Like I didn't think anyone. I didn't think anyone in the UK actually got decent weather like that. I, I thought. I thought the UK was <laughs> basically one giant Seattle, is what I heard. It, it's. It would be pushing it to say decent weather. I would say uh, <laughs> it's. It's t-shirt weather. Let's say that. Um, so we have crab fishing planned for this afternoon. So uh, all all is good. Nice. Okay. So uh, what are you in? Is this Cornwall? Is that what I would understand? This is this is Cornwall. This is uh, uh, a place called Truro. Mm-hmm. Are uh, you a fan is, of pasties? That's what I want to know. Yeah, and in fact, we had pasties yesterday. Is that um, right? It's a traditional dish of well, takeout pasties. It's a traditional dish of Cornwall. I know, it's, right? Uh, okay, so I live in Michigan. It, the Upper Peninsula has basically, yeah. in the very beginning, the Upper Peninsula was all a lot of Cornish miners, and so. Pasties are everywhere yeah. in the UP. So pasties are basically where you live and north of where I live. So there yeah. you have it. For the rest of the whole world listening to this, you don't know what we're talking about. But you're missing out, I'm telling you. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my son in the background. No, that's perfect. Uh, Jason, when I first met you or when I first came into contact with you, probably what most people would say is on Dentaltown. And it's got to be yep. better part of 10 years ago. Maybe 10 more years than ago. That. Yeah. 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 So you um you were putting up photos on Dentaltown. And it's really funny because talking to you you come off as a regular guy, but for like a lot of years in my head, you're not just a regular guy because I've seen what you do. Yeah, but but for a lot of years in my head I thought you were like basically one step down from God because you made you made composite look, you know, you made teeth look like teeth when you were you were storing them with composite. And that was Frankly, that was outside of my understanding because you were you were putting a lot of the, well, for one thing, you took a lot of photos of your cases and you put them up mm-hmm. on Dentaltown. So, a lot of people know you uh, from Dentaltown, and that's just sort of sort of the detail and the and the. I think a lot of people like me uh, aspired to be able to do something like a lot of people, other people like really, you're gonna spend that much time yeah, <laughs> making, yeah, making yeah. composites look like teeth. But it's, so basically, anyone who hasn't seen your work before. Uh, it's now it's basically Facebook is where you do this stuff, right? I mean, it's, that's where, that's where yeah. dentists, dentists go to strut their stuff. Yeah. Right? What it do you think now, about that? I How mean, do you feel about that? How do you, do you think Facebook has been a good thing for dentistry or do you think it's a, 
Do you think it makes dentists kind of feel uh, unrealistic about what what they should be getting done in there in the real world? What do you think about that? I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I think I think it's a really good resource because you have access to everybody in the world, uh, and certainly for for myself, it's been great because um, I've been invited to lecture all over the world by people who've seen uh, my stuff on Facebook. I also now have friends from all over the world, which, if you think about it, I live in a a, a very rural country town in the west of England. 30 years ago, I, I would not have had, had that opportunity, and I, I would probably know people in England and perhaps some in Europe and maybe perhaps one or two in 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 the US, but now I have friends in Australia. I have friends in, for example, Kazakhstan, which is a very out of the way place, friends in Scandinavia, all these kind of places you, you, you wouldn't connect with people. So in a way, it's been very positive. It's very positive in so much as, as people can see um, what's possible. There are a lot of very interesting things being done on Facebook with photography and with video. Uh, uh, n- it, apart from apart from the actual clinical work, um, but then on the flip, it's a slight negative in so much as people are taking their education from Facebook, and and I think that may be a problem long term, because I think to get true understanding, you you really need to do certainly. Um, seminar-based courses, hands-on-based courses, and, and really you need to have some degree of mentorship. Um, I agree. And I think this kind of, kind of snap education from Facebook, what I call copy-paste education, you look at a case uh, and then you copy it. Uh, but you, what people are doing is they're copying cases, um, but they have a lack of understanding of the basic principles. Mm-hmm. And because of that, if if your if your case deviates from the case you're copying, which it commonly does because you're dealing with a human being, sure. then, then, then you're going to get a problem. So I think I think it's a really good resource, but I think it should be used as an adjunct rather than as your primary focus of education. I agree, and, and that's my that's my stance on Facebook. It's funny too because um, I think it's easy for someone to look at a million cases because honestly there's so many facebook groups where a lot of really amazing stuff is being shown but uh very few of the groups show all the steps so it would be easy to leave steps out on this sort of thing it would be it would be easy to um and perhaps there's a lot of there there's not sometimes they're showing their very best stuff or sometimes a person really is taking a lot more time than than probably the -the (laughs) run-of-the-mill dentist is able to take in there you know Honestly, just breaking for photography sometimes is, is is a huge time suck, you know. So it's I I feel like you can't. It might be unrealistic for for the day to day results to look all like that all the time. I don't know. Well, I you know I think there's there's also there's there's a degree of narcissism and a degree of kind of look at me. So you're obviously and I, and this is the same with myself. I'm not calling people out on this. So you're gonna choose your best cases. Yeah. Um. And and. This is not universally true, but the majority of people show their best cases with no failures. And there are some groups emerging where, where yeah. failures are shown. And, and I actually think that's a good thing because you can you can maybe go through the perfect case, 
and then you can think, well, what, what happens if this goes wrong? What happens if the isolation is not so good? What happens if a cusp fractures? What happens if X, Y, Z? And you can see the failures and, and, then, and then work through from that. So that, that can be an interesting way of looking at it. I, I agree. Um, I think it's, in fact, I think that's probably as important as anything. And I think a lot of educators, uh, as you said, there's a certain amount of Okay, so I put a, I don't put a ton of photos up because I'm super lazy about photography. Even though I've got a <laughs> microscope with a really good camera sitting you're right really there, you're really set up. You're, I am you're better set up than me. <laughs> I, I I'm better set up than almost anyone. And even when it's right there, I don't do it very often. It's just and and, and the the classic thing is like every day I'm like, ah, why didn't I take a photo of that before I started? That would have been like it would have taken three seconds, and I just don't think to do it. So what is a barrier? Just my I, mental state. I see. I, I have to tell you that that that's something I want to talk to you about. I think my workflow is such that, and and maybe it isn't. I can say workflow. What I really mean is that I'm so ADD. I'm. I mean, I am. Uh-huh. I I just don't have the discipline to just sit down from start to finish and get stuff done. Man, I just I'm terrible that way. I have a lot of friends that are like that too. And to be frank, see, so we're yin and yang. You're, you're ADD, I'm OCD, so maybe we should get together and open an office. I was going to And if we don't kill each other, it'd be perfect, right? It's just, but I will say that my dad, uh, my dad practiced, he graduated in 1968, and I got out of dental uh-huh. school and saw him as this is how you practice dentistry, and he would be, the way he practiced, most people would call him a roller skate dentist. I mean, he was running three and four chairs at a time plus two hygiene. And um, that was uh-huh. like that was the norm for him. And so when I started out, that's what I thought that norm was. I didn't realize that that that, that I thought that's I, I just what dentists did. I would have to retire within a year if I did. That. Well, there's a, <laughs> oh as you may know, I, I had some I had some troubles with uh, with addiction in the past, and I'm not I'm not saying that that caused it. I'm not saying that, but I'm also not not saying. That. I'm just saying because yeah, I I started my practice and I I did two I worked two chairs and two hygienists like regularly. And uh-huh. that was, I mean, that that's a grind, especially if you're new and you don't really know what you're doing. But the, the watching what Dad did, and Dad did a lot of ortho, so I'm not saying he was running four restorative chairs, but he did a lot uh, well, of ortho. He did a lot of different. Ortho is different, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, I think, I think it was cool. He kind of there were times he always had a chair sort of open, and he had assistants that were really comfortable doing ortho. So, but it was still a lot yeah. going on. Still a lot going on. Yeah, I think I don't know if chair hopping to do the kind of restorative I do, I think chair hopping might actually be less efficient. Mm-hmm. I, it's funny. Um, it's funny that you say that because you waste a lot of time jumping up between, and then if your scheduling is perfect, and I mean we all work in the real world, it never is. Patients don't turn up on time. Yeah. You run late. Things go wrong. If your scheduling is perfect, then yeah, it would run perfectly, but it never is. So you always end up either having to rush something or not finish something properly or blah, blah, blah. I I don't think for upper-end restorative it, it, it can work well, but but I may be wrong. Well, I tell you what, though. Okay, so here's for, one of the things that, that, that keeps me in the room, um, mm-hmm. rubber dam placement. I feel, yeah. I feel, okay, I, I've had a rubber dam on and it's not, it's not hard, it's a, but you're cranking them open for a while. And so I always feel guilty. I don't want to leave anyone like that. I kind of want to start and finish the procedure with, with, uh, without leaving, if only because <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, yeah. if the patient has to be in this thing, well, then I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I'm going to stick around, you know? And I think most Although, of the, most of the restorative honest, you show, it, you're, you've got a dam on. So it's like, you don't really want to leave oh, everyone. them. Everyone. Yeah. But the, yeah, getting back to the chair hopping, I could see an advantage. I'll rewind and contradict myself now. I could see an advantage in having 
an assistant or a hygienist anesthetize a patient mm -hmm. and put on a rubber dam. So I just come into the room with the with the patient set up. There you go. I could see that, but that's in well, I, I hesitate to say Europe, but certainly in the UK, um, we're not allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. So we we cannot have we don't have expanded function. So um, it's so funny that you bring this up. Literally, I thought about this crazy. last night. Here, tell what uh -huh. do you what are your thoughts on expanded function? Like I I read a thread on on our the Dental Hacks Nation page. Uh, people talking uh -huh. about that is so far outside my understanding, and and I'm not going to kid you. In Michigan, we're allowed to do that, and I just never have. Like I the idea that an assistant could place a filling after I prepare the tooth to me. Um, I just feel like it's hard enough to place a filling. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like I, I, I don't know. I have a, I have. Uh, I think it would be a positive for anesthetic and rubber dam mm -hmm. for sure, mm -hmm. because that's quite a simple procedure to do well. Mm -hmm. um, if you repeatedly do it, so I could imagine that a good expanded function could do that really well. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of placing the restoration. I actually think it's one of the more difficult parts of the procedure. Yeah. Um, just as difficult as the preparation. So why the dentist can do the preparation yet not the restoration is kind of sounds weird to me. So that's a negative. On the positive, um, I teach programs, as you know, all over the world mm -hmm. and, and in the UK. And in the UK, um, commonly on my courses, I would say – out of a course, I typically have between 20 and 25 on a program, uh, one or two day program, and usually one or two are what we call therapists, yeah. which is uh, a, is more than expanded function and is more than a hygienist. So these people are trained in dental hygiene. Mm -hmm. They also – it began in the RAF, in the Air Force. Um, so they do hygiene, but they also do restorative treatment on kids, mm -hmm. on deciduous teeth, and they do, I have to get this correct, but very simple restorative treatment on adults that does not include exposure of the pulp. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I love, I love that. We have, we have therapists in, in certain states, and, and it's, it's expanding in the United States for sure. I do love that. They say that uh, therapists <laughs> can do, um, like, you're not planning on exposing the pulp until you exactly. do. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, it and then it screws up the whole day for the dentist who's jumping between four chairs. Yeah, um, it makes you wonder. But the other thing is, is that in in the in the, like in Minnesota they can do simple extractions. And in my mind, I'm like they're all simple till they're not. <laughs> yeah. But moving on to the on from that, I would say perhaps in the top five best delegates on my courses ever, two have been therapists. Um. That's saying a, a lot. One, Coming one, from you, that's saying a lot. Was in the, yeah. A, what, a, what was in the UK, I had a very embarrassing situation actually once where a, a, a very well-known UK dentist who's well-known, uh, I won't name names because it will be awkward, but is well-known uh, for being a cosmetic dentist, brought his therapist along to an anterior program and we were doing a class four. Um and he he said, well, I want to learn to do the advanced stuff and I want her to learn uh, so she can treat kids, and which sound valid to me. Sure. So so we did the lecture and he asked some sensible questions. And all, he's a nice guy. All went well. And then we went to the hands-on. And the problem is on the hands-on, she was better. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you laugh, uh, but that's by, that's like the thread that you're talking about. And, yeah, by a long, not by a little bit, by a long way. And so, uh, and so, I said to her, "Why don't Why don't you do the more of this in the office?" And she's like, "Well, I'm not allowed." So I had I had this kind of awkward conversation with him, which was like, "Why don't you just let her do the restorative in the anterior?" Because like she's really, really good, um, and that's what's happened now, apparently. So, so that that is, it's so cool well. that you say that because here's the thing: I listened and was reading this this thread about dentists going, "Look, you know, it, the thread was what happens when your patient wants the dentist to do it and not the the assistant, the uh, extended or the expanded function assistant to do it." And uh, what uh-huh. the dentists were saying is, "Look, I just tell them that they're better at this than I am." And there's a part of me that has disdain for that, going, now, wait a second, you're the dentist. You're supposed to be better. But on the other hand, what you just said, coming from you, that's a, that's a mouthful, to be honest. I, it, it gives me permission to go, okay, it would be okay for an assistant to be better at this than, than a dentist because, because yeah. there is a certain uh, amount of natural ability and artistic sense of things, too, that people may have, you know? Uh, I think more than a certain amount. I think um, of my programs, I kind of – try and teach people the basics it's like i always i have an analogy it's kind of like teaching people to paint so you can teach them how to set the board up how to choose the right brushes how to prime the board how to mix the paint how to put it on but actually the difference between somebody's like senior high school painting and maybe you know a constable or 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 something like that is really innate and you can't really teach people to paint to a very high That's, level. I think that you're right. Okay, so I was in. I played the saxophone from. Okay, so I'm I'm interrupting uh, only because this is so so incredibly true. I, I played the saxophone since I was in fourth grade. I was in yep. the band in high school. I was in the marching band in college. I I was as active. That was like the thing that I did throughout. That was my big activity. Yep. And looking back, I mean, it was really important. It was great. It was part of the social. I'm not a good musician. I'm I am uh-huh. I am barely passable. And it wasn't you, you know it, it wasn't but exactly exactly. <laughs> I'm sort of like and and I laugh because there's a certain amount. There are some people that were just good at it to start with, and they took uh-huh. the instruction and ran with it. There's some people like me that could become technically passable, but I was I was never going to be a musician. And what's weird about that is I think that there is for these kinds of skills, particularly you know hand and eye skills there is a certain amount of ability that just comes naturally to people and that's i think what that's what you're talking about yeah i am i'm 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 not saying you can't go on a class and learn to be competent Mm -hmm. because that's what we're aiming for is competence Mm -hmm. but and hopefully every, every dentist should be competent after a while it's not universally true but but hopefully um but for somebody to become a, 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 a wow dentist, let's say that, there has to be some level of, of, of inner ability. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes it's interesting. Sometimes people don't know they have it. And and that's one fun thing I find of programs. You can actually draw it out of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and other people like myself with musical ability are, are always going to be just competent or average. Mm-hmm. But there we go. That's that's just life. Well, you I know, come, again – Coming from you, this is revolutionary to some extent because what that gives me is that I don't have to be as good as you as much as, as, much as I want to be. Well, I, I, I think, think the industry I think, is a, like that. I, I, I'm the, like that with endo. I'm not good at endo. I'm, I'm not dangerous, but I'm not uh, – when people look at the white lines on my radiographs, they're never going to look twice. They're never going to go, mm-hmm, wow. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I, I don't do endo anymore because of that. I kind of, um, but I kind of love that. Like you, first off, you're, I mean, the amount of time that it would take me, God, you know, and we're both microscope using dentists. Interestingly, we should yep. talk about that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and I, I like endo. I'm passable at endo. But when people hear that I have microscopes in my office, they just assume that I'm I'm a whiz at endo. I'm like, man, you know, I, I use it more for restorative than I don't do that much endo. Well, actually, the micros I've I've been microscope user now for I think eight maybe nine years. Um, getting the scope was actually the reason I got the scope. Bec- it was a because at the time I was not struggling with endo, but I'd reached a block with endo mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I wanted to see more so I could do more endo to a higher level. Um, and I, I, I was planning to use it for restorative, but it wasn't my primary focus. It was primarily for endo. But when I, f- I found when I got the scope, I, I then had a double problem in so much as I could see what was going on for anybody who hasn't used a scope you can actually if you use a scope correctly you can see like deep splits in in root canals you really can can. it's insane for sure you can almost see to the apex sometimes with upper centrals um but i found i didn't have the hand skills to actually get where i wanted to go so although i could see the problem and i knew because i have a level of education i knew what needed to be done yeah i didn't have the skills to do it yes nothing worse than that actually (laughs) Yeah, well, it's really de- – you've gone from a point of being mildly depressed that your endo is not so great yeah. to being totally depressed that you know Because exactly you know what, what you're missing. Is. You know what you're and, missing. And it's you insane. You it. Yeah. And then also it requires such an investment in different instruments and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah to deal with all this different stuff that basically by getting the scope, I actually abandoned endo altogether. Mm-hmm. So then I switched to restorative – and I find now with the scope, I mean, doing, for example, crown and certainly minimal prep veneer margins mm-hmm. without scope is almost impossible. Mm-hmm. Not so much even for the magnification. Magnification is great, but the light. Yeah, yes. It's shadowless lighting. And certainly uh, anybody who's been to one of my classes will notice um, when you look at the polish on anteriors, for example, a resin veneer. It looks great, but all I've done is I've used the scope at between 8 and 12 times mag to eliminate every single scratch that I can see. And then when I pull the scope away and look with the naked eye, it looks highly polished. Yes. All I've done is I've eliminated scratches. Yeah. Um, and you cannot do that with – you can just about do it with loops, maybe four and a half times loops with headlight. But you still get you still get shadowing. Yep. So – and you also lose a posture. Um so that's been my thing with scopes, really, really to push me away from endo. To be honest, isn't that funny? I mean, I, I've had, and, and I'm the guy who I'm the guy who uh, I'm like the Charlie Brown with the football because I I'm looking at taking another serious look at at improving my endo game because I feel uh-huh. I, I, it's it's like uh, <laughs> when I lo- when I lost told, a bunch but... <laughs> of weight years ago, I felt like thin people should run, so I ran, you know. And I'm like, if I have microscopes, I should be doing endo. And and, yeah. and I don't know that – we'll see. Maybe – I don't know if I'm going to – there's a certain level of frustration. Well, if but. you look at what – I mean, Marcus Hersler is German. You may know is perhaps one of the best periodontists in the world. Mm-hmm. And he works exclusively with a scope. Yep. And he doesn't do endo. Yeah. So, no, that's true. <laughs> I, I, and that's I, the I don't other feel thing. bad about being the composite guy who – the only problem with uh, 
with this scope for composite is color perception yes. and depth perception with a filter. Yes. And, and if I'm honest, I do my layering with the loops. Sure. Um, because of that reason. Although, um, I won't mention brands, but a brand is bringing out a filter that is not true daylight, but close to daylight. Oh, interesting. In the near future. So um, it's okay. So it's, I, you so can, it's, I, I'll mention brands. I think it's Zeiss because I think I saw that yeah. too. They're going to put yeah, that filter on there. They're, the new scope is, which is funny because Zeiss hasn't really changed their their scope models for a long time. So it, it <laughs> no. is interesting. I mean, like we're talking twenty years. I always or something. Ref- well, I, I'm. I'll declare now. I'm a Zeiss opinion leader. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm also an opinion leader for Zoomax, and I've worked mm-hmm. with Global or and Siler. So I'm I'm not particularly biased, but I have a Zeiss Pico in my sure. office. Um, but I always think of the Zeiss scope as kind of like a Land Rover. Mm-hmm. If you think of the old Land Rover Defender. It's a solid bit of kit. Yeah. Uh, but it, and it still works and it still does the job that it's supposed to. And it's easy to service, easy to strip down, blah, 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 blah. But it hasn't changed for yeah. some time. Yeah. Uh, I don't see that as a particular negative, but. Well, it's an analog technology, right? I mean, it's not like, it's not like you're going to do a software upgrade. It's, it's, a, no. it's a really good piece of analog technology. That's for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to step back. I want to become a fly on the wall in your office. The Alan Mead Experience, fly on the wall. What I want to know about is what does uh, what is it like on a day to day? First off, what's your what's your teaching versus working in the office schedule? Like, in other words, how how okay. often are you in the office? How often are you teaching? So, uh, the last three years, I've done between ninety and hundred days a year in the office. Um, I used to. I used to be a up to then I was a full on uh office dentist. I I originally worked for the first maybe five, ten years of my career worked five days with late nights mm-hmm. uh Monday through to Friday. And then I cut down from uh down to Monday through to Thursday with only one late night a week. So I cut my hours, but interestingly enough, I found my productivity increased by cutting those hours. Sure. And then, uh, and I think for a dentist that doesn't lecture, that's probably the sweet spot, in my opinion, of mm-hmm. four-day week mm-hmm. um, in terms of profitability. Um, then I started to get more into lecturing. And, and, and to be honest to your listeners, uh, my primary income is lecture. So you must know that. And mm-hmm. I also do not now own my office. Mm-hmm. So I associate, which is slightly different. It's not like an associate in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's it's slightly different in the U.K. But anyway, um, so I don't have management issues to worry about. Okay. And now I work three days a week. Uh, Just so you know, Tuesday, every listener, Wednesday. every listener that's listening just went, "Oh my God, that is the life." But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you you work in the U.K. You work as an associate, so your you your income is. Um, just so they know, is between – it depends on your ability, but between 35 and 55% mm-hmm. of gross production. No, of gross collections. Sure. Um, minus a lab fee. So it's actually – if you look at it for somebody who's working part-time as I am, uh, it would be difficult to do as well in a single-handed office mm-hmm. unless you have multiple associates and then you have management issues. Okay. Um, so anyway, getting back to it. Yeah, I work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I start work clinically at half eight in the morning, and then I work straight through. We have no breaks until maybe uh, 
12.45. Mm -hmm. And then I take, well, my nurse has a cleanup time of 15 minutes uh, between 12.45 and 1. In that time, I, I usually say, see a patient for a discussion about potential treatment. Mm -hmm. And then I take lunch from 1 until 2. Um, I don't eat lunch for an hour. Mm -hmm. I'm not French. Um, <laughs> I usually take a I usually take a sandwich uh, or something like that uh, for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then I do paperwork, take phone calls, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, until two o'clock. And then I work from two through until five. My nurse has cleaned down at five for half an hour till half five. And then I usually leave the office about half five. On Tuesdays, I work until six. Okay. So we call that, we call that our late night. It's technically a lot of, not a late night. Um and we have multiple dentists in our office, all of whom work part-time. So there's me. I do mainly composite resin and restorative, restorative being indirect ceramics mm -hmm. um, and gold. Uh, I still do gold, oddly enough. Nice. And then we have a guy who does implants and ortho. We have another guy who does general practice and ortho. Sorry, general practice and implants. Uh, we have another guy who just does endo. We have another guy who just does perio. And uh, we have two hygienists. And we'd run all that out of two chairs and a hygienist chair. Wow. So, okay. yeah, there's a lot so, of jumping around. So scheduling, scheduling has got to be the key there at that point. Like two chairs and a hygiene yeah. chair. Yeah. Well, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm in there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So my operatory is is primarily me. So it's kind of set up for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the endodontist works in there on Thursdays. Okay. Um. So the scopes in there, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and uh, the um, the periodontist works in there on Saturdays, uh, and on Fridays it's actually open. So occasionally, um, like for example, in two weeks' time, I have a veneer case that didn't go so well. Um, the patient wants to get on with it, so I'm going to go in on Friday and deal with that. So there's a little bit of slack in the system, a little bit. Um, and if I'm not working out of it on a Friday, then uh, sometimes the guys um, who work in the other chair will kind of two-chair it, if you understand what I mean. Absolutely. Um, because they're doing implants, and obviously it makes a huge mess. Sure. And they can just dump that in one room and go into another room. Sure. And so I mean, implants, relatively efficiently. Uh, by definition, implants are going to have a certain amount of complications that need to be seen relatively immediately. So you've got you to have <laughs> yeah. some, some yeah. overflow, yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I wasn't expecting to hear that. So basically, and you're not what doing... What did you expect? I, I guess I don't know. I don't I don't know what I expected, but I love the it sounds like you guys yep. use your space really efficiently and I think I think yep. as you know in the United States probably we don't. We do kind of the opposite of that. Like like we're supposed to build huge offices yeah. so we have capacity and overflow basically. It sounds like you guys almost yeah, do the when opposite. I, when I see when I see well it's interesting because you know I look at people's chair off I mean I'm I'm a composite guy i'm i'm like resin monkey sure. so i have no i have no real expertise in office management or efficiency or anything like that so who am i to talk but when i see a guy building a, an office for himself with eight chairs i kind of look at it and i think well wouldn't it be more productive to have like eight dentists yeah um maybe i'm wrong i don't know but well uh, and i i think that i think that I mean, you know, on Dentaltown, particularly Howard was always like, man, you know, this the difference between a guy making this much money and a guy making this much money was was how many how many extra chairs he had because that means he can treat a lot of the stuff the same day, 
and I, I have to tell you, I'm, yep. I'm not a huge same day guy because I don't know if it's just I need my brain needs to digest it or in, I mean, in your case, you're doing a lot of there's a lot of stuff you do. You couldn't do same day because you have to do some of the lab stuff prior to prior to doing yep. it, like a patient Even walking in the door. Fours. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So actually, and you've talked about this when I when I've seen you lecture, you talk about you have kind of a lab set up like you spend a fair amount of time in the lab <laughs> that, that while be, you that would be a huge exaggeration i have a i have a 6 foot square room with a table in it and a lamp and yep. a handpiece and a waxing knife uh, uh, and some cardboard boxes with models in it and that's kind of my lab um, but but so, honestly though it gets the job done right cuz what you're doing yeah, in a lot yeah. of cases is yeah. you i mean Probably the the majority of the lab work you're doing is making being able to make a putty stent for class four composites. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I have a thing that I don't like downtime. Now, I, I think I discussed this in my lectures, but um, many dentists I see, if they have downtime, they finish a procedure early, or, or or a patient fails to attend, they seem to me to spend a lot of time on Facebook. From what I see. Guilty um, as charged. Uh, I do like the, the I do like the British version I don't like of the. That is unproductive. It's horribly unproductive. Because but I do like to say fail to attend is such a nice way of putting it. Fail to attend. What do you call is it, so, fail, patient failure. Patient failure. <laughs> yeah. I fail to <laughs> attend is, is very nice. I when I'm angry about someone not showing up, it's I like fail to attend is just just doesn't get the job done. I'm way too pissed to say fail to attend. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm not pissed, you see, because what I do is I have tasks like because I run a lecture business, I have lecture slides to write. Sure. I have, you know, emails to even if I wasn't doing that, I have emails to do, referrals to other specialists. And then if I don't have that, what I can do is go into the lab and do a wax up. Now, my business model for doing, for example, a class four is the way I price it as a patient is seen for an examination. They have a, an impression taken for, for the models and then the build for the, the models and the lab wax up done by my local lab, right? Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the build I build on time. Uh, they build for the time I'm going to spend doing that resin. Now, the models are poured up by my assistant um, and then they go into the lab and and if I get time, I do the wax up myself. Mm-hmm. So I've got downtime. So my gross income for that downtime is zero. Yeah. Sure. So basically, and you've got overhead. So basically, you're losing money in that downtime. Sure. So I go I go into my lab and I make the money my technician would make, which is nowhere near what I would got make it. In the chair got it. Yeah. But it's more than I would make on Facebook. Let's say that. Uh huh. Um. So I'm. I'm produ- less productive, but I'm productive. If I'm busy and I don't have any downtime, we just look at them and say, well, this is coming in next week. We we better just punt this over to the lab. We send it to the lab and the lab does it. So there's an, 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 And the patient's been billed for that anyway. So there's no real loss there. So I'm not saying that's the greatest business model on earth, and I'm not saying you know, it, it's going to make you enough to buy a yacht in the Caribbean, but um, – it's, it's, more productive more productive it's more productive than it's more productive than the yeah, whatever. It's more productive you know? than falling back to the internet, which is which is frankly, I, I'm not going to lie to you. That's that's been my fallback for years too. If I got downtime, which is ridiculous, I, I like that. But I mean, I, I was always picturing that you had like like um, I'd love to see pictures because in my when you've lectured about it, and a lot of times <sighs> I've seen you lecture about the class four composites. It was pretty grandiose what uh-huh. I had in my mind what you were doing for lab work. But I like the fact that 
Okay, so if you have no. the time to wax it, you do it. But if you don't have the time, it goes to the lab technician. That's kind of great. I sort of love that. At, yeah. At yeah, what point? Most, Go ahead, most, I'm sorry. like to practice, see. So most patients, and patients say, well, what do you do when the patient comes in with a, with a broken tooth, which is an accident? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, you deal with it like a normal dentist. But to be frank, most of my cases are not like that. Most of my cases are, are patients commonly now they've had a class four done recently maybe certainly within the last year or two and they're dissatisfied with it mm-hmm. so they've lived with it for a while so you can take an impression with it for it and schedule that patient in sometimes even a month's time so you have enough and more time to do the lab work yeah um but then dentists say oh well you know i don't have an office like that uh, uh my response to that is well We'll, we'll make your office like that. Sure. It, it's not going to happen. To give younger dentists an idea, this didn't happen overnight. Yeah, this tell happened, me about this, that. This is about a five to eight year. Well, I mean, I began uh, – my, my original training was in oral surgery. So mm-hmm. I did an oral surgery residency for three years. Mm-hmm. And then I met my wife and I decided I wasn't going to go – in England, you have to do medicine to do oral maxillofacial surgery. Yep. And that was a plan. And I decided I wasn't going to do medicine. I was going to stay with my wife. I was going to marry my wife. That was the plan. So um, we we had this problem whereby um, we have this uh, – it was called at the time uh, foundation dentist training or VT training, vocational training, mm-hmm. where the dentist has to do a year mentored in, a, in an accredited practice uh, prior to them being let out on the public. if you, I think you call it general professional training, GPR sure, or something, sure, yep. something like that in the US. So uh, I decided in June, July uh, that I wasn't doing oral surgery in September. So I had to get a GPR job in, in September. Well, obviously, they'd all gone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, You're kind of late to the uh, game. Sure. Yeah. So I had to scout around and, and f- eventually found a practice, which is the same office I'm still in. Oh, wow. So in 1998, I started at this office, which was in Cornwall, which was, in the, as we've already said, in the wilds of England, in the middle of nowhere. And the reason why there were vacancies in Cornwall is because there wasn't, at that time, a dental school near there. And basically, nobody wanted to go there. It was kind of like uh, taking the office in Alaska or, I don't know, sure. some remote part of the US. Yeah. So I went there and um, – uh, started as a vocational trainee and opened the doors and we had a queue of patients around the door for the new dentist uh-huh. and I thought I thought it was because I was popular <laughs> uh, because because I trained I, at that time I had this delusion that because I'd been in a hospital uh, residency for three years i was probably going to be the popular dentist but no the reason why i had a queue around the door is because all the dentists in our area at that time <clears throat> had decided uh to come out of the national health service which was uh a little bit like an insurance base but insurance by by the government yep and go fee for service the week before so basically, so basically, I got all the dropout patients that didn't want to go down that route. Sure, uh, which is a tough call for a young dentist the first time in in practice. For sure, and it is. So, for sure, it is. Uh, I mean, it's it's a tough call. 
it's a tough call. I mean, we have uh, d- different states. In the United States have have different levels of Medicaid, but that's you know the one thing you oh, can oh, say about Medicaid, that is it's Medicaid and less. Yeah, the NHS. Um, so I I got all the patients that wanted to stay in that kind of system. So um, that's I'm just how I I'm just going to say this. I'm so not seeing a lot of resin veneers in that population, though. That's that's I'm not I'm not seeing a lot of no, high end class four no. kind of work there. Exactly not. So I began, and basically I had to get on. So I had this um, hospital-based mentality, and um, basically I'm proposing – I'm looking at a patient and saying, like, well, well you need an FMR, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and I need to get you in and take some photographs and some study models, and we'll deprogram you, um, and blah, blah, blah. And these patients are like, Dude, I've got toothache. I need this tooth out, and, I, and I'm never coming back after that. Um, and, and so, fine. I'm a slow learner, and finally the penny dropped. And so I started doing quite, to be honest, quite basic dentistry, just taking teeth out, single single tooth restorations. And then I managed to convince some of that patient base. Obviously, the patient base was growing. I I managed to convince some of the patient base that really they needed to get involved in more comprehensive dentistry. Now, comprehensive dentistry was not deprogramming and full mouth rehabs. <laughs> comprehensive dentistry for that patient was, and this is what I used to do in an hour. I, I remember I always scheduled 50 minutes or an hour. We would do a quadrant. So I would anesthetize, for example, lower right, strip out all the lower three surface MOD amalgams mm-hmm. of four teeth, when the amalgams were out, I would spin a scalar around and remove all of the subgingival calculus, of which there was a lot. Yeah, hey, because you had the was, chance, yeah. Yeah, but it was easy because all the amalgams were out. Yep. Um, and you just went round and round the tooth and got a good scaling done, first good scaling they'd had for 25, 30 years. Yeah. And then in this bloodbath, <laughs> I would put on two matrices and wedges do two amalgams and then put another two matrices and do another two amalgams and carve them and send the patient on their way. And they were restored quadrants like that. And a lot of patients actually bought into that. Um, So that was kind of, and that was from about 97, 98 till around, that took me about two or three years to kind of get a relatively stable patient base of patients that just didn't want emergency care. Uh-huh. They wanted, let's call it comprehensive care, but I would, it would be more accurate to call it normal dentistry. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so I then stabilized that base, and then a few of them, you know, you'd get a cusp off, or, or, or they just needed a single restoration. And so they'd say, what are my options here? So obviously, I go. Th- they've got a three-surface restoration. I say, well, you can have a silver amalgam, and it will cost this. I will tell you now, the cost at that time, late 1990s, early 2000s, was something like £17.20. Yeah. It's about $5. Yeah. So it's like, you can have this, or I can do a composite resin for you, a two-surface. And the cost, I think at that time, I was charging like 50 or £60 which is ridiculously low considering I spend like 45 minutes oh, to yeah. an hour on it. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. Even at that time, nearly 20 years ago, it's too low. But I was learning. I didn't, I, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Or you can have an onlay. And the onlay, the onlay fee for me at that time was 250 pounds, <laughs> which to those patients was just like – I may as well have said it was $2 million Sure. Because there's no way they were having it done. Yeah. So what happened is the aspirational patients, of which there were some, would go with the resin. Mm-hmm. 
And initially it was one a month. So it was like resin of the month. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but I did at that time have a really crappy intraoral camera, Uh really crappy. It was a really bad, grainy thing. Um, Arguably, they're all pretty crappy still compared to what, what we're using, but, but I get it, yeah. I don't have experience of them. I haven't used intraoral for 10 years. Same but anyway, here. what I would do is I would take I would take an intraoral before and I would take an intraoral after. I had a printer fixed up to it, again, a crappy printer. Yeah. <laughs> and I would print off a before and after photo and say, there's your before and after. Now, at that time, it was really for my ego it was like, look what a great job I've done. And I didn't realize that this was actually quite a good marketing tool. Sure. What happened is those patients would take their before and afters and go and show their family. And then their family would come back and say, well, you know, you did this white filling for my friend or my brother or my sister or my husband. Um, can I have one of those? And it multiplied from being resin of the month to being one every day. Uh-huh. And then, and that took a time, just for young dentists. I mean, young dentists are probably not in this position because we're doing resins more commonly, but they're probably trying to sell onlays. Sure. I was moving from selling amalgam to selling resin. And they're probably nowadays, younger dentists are probably trying to move on from selling large composite resins, MODFL composite resins, to selling onlays. It's probably the same same thing. This this actually took me about two to three years to get into like one a day yeah. from a scratch start. But once you get into the one a day, it very quickly spins within six months a year to all of them. Interesting. It's quite surprising. It's a little bit like building a snowball. If you build a snowball, a small snowball, and then just roll it down the hill ever so slightly – it just goes very, very slowly at first. And sometimes it may stall and you might need to give it a little push. Um, and then when it comes to the end of the hill, it's like a big out-of-control snowball that's banging all over the place. And and that's kind of where I am now. Now uh, we have an out-of-control snowball. And if I say to a patient, um, you know, um, I think you should have an amalgam in that tooth, which I occasionally do. Mm-hmm. I still do amalgam. You know, if I've got a lower second bowler with sub-G margins on somebody who's difficult to manage, I'm not going to do a resin. I'm probably going to do amalgam. Nice. But if I say that to them, if I say that to them, they look at me like I'm insane. Yeah. You know, because I have the opposite problem. But it takes time. And then once I built this into uh, a, a kind of everyday procedure – that's kind of when I got into taking photographs of it because I kind of got bored. Um, and then my career went two ways. It firstly went into the lecture career and secondly, in terms of the practice, it went from – I get bored very easily. So it went from, okay, now I've fixed my practice up into um, a non-amalgam practice, let's say, even though I did some amalgam, but mainly non-amalgam, main, sure. mainly cosmetic restorations. Let's boost it into being a high-end practice. So that, that's when I, I mainly cut my teeth, literally, uh, on posterior restorations on class one and class two. Um, then I started to learn about anteriors, and that's when I realized, really, you could charge a premium for doing high-end anteriors. Nice. Jason um, Smithson? Actually, I am actually going to, because we are running up against time right now, I'm actually going to, you're going to have to do a part two with me because, because I, none of this, so much of this I did not expect. 
I mean, for as long as I've known you, been following you, a lot of this stuff I didn't really expect. So I'm going to probably have you come back sometime. And we, I, I'd love what? to hear how you transition from posterior to anterior, but because we're trying to do something new and exciting here at the Alameda Experience, I am going to cut you short. I really appreciate you spending me the, you spending the time with me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm going to go have some breakfast. You're going to do some crab fishing. Yeah, I'm so, going to go crab fishing with a nine-year-old. Nice. Nice. Very good. Dr. Jason Smithson, thank you so much for being thank on the show. This much. was really great. Cool. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye now. 